So good morning and welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, Texas. Our lay leader today is Michael West, and I'm Susan Yarbrough, the student intern minister. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here together on one of those days known as Seminarian Sundays, uh, the, the ones right after Thanksgiving or Christmas or the ones when we switch from daylight saving time. You know, the ones where very few people come to church and any blunders by the seminarian will hopefully not be widely noticed or widely reported. I'm delighted to be here with all of you today and to tell you that we are a liberal church of deeds, not creeds, and we're part of a denomination with a long history of valuing the right of conscience, conscience, the application of reason to faith, and the divine spark in every person. In keeping with that tradition, please now take a moment and turn to those sitting around you, see their divine spark, and greet the holy in them. (laughs) Some people think Unitarian Universalists have no rituals, but they would be wrong, wrong, wrong. The flaming chalice is a symbol of our faith, and one of our rituals is to light it near the beginning of every Sunday service. So please join Michael and me now in saying the words that accompany this beloved ritual. In the light of truth and the warmth of community, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning is responsive reading number 512, which can be found in the back of your gray hymnal. Let me invite you to please rise as you are able in body or spirit as Michael leads us in this reading. Come, let us worship together in gratitude and thanksgiving. We give thanks this day for the expanding grandeur of creation, worlds known and unknown, galaxies beyond galaxies, filling us with awe and challenging our imaginations. For this fragile planet Earth, its times and tides, its sunsets and seasons. For the joy of human life, its wonders and surprises, its hopes and achievements. For our human community, our common past and future hope, our oneness transcending all separation, our capacity to work for peace and justice in the midst of hostility and oppression. For high hopes and noble causes, for faith without fanaticism, for understanding of views not shared. For all who have labored and suffered for a fairer world, who have lived so that others might live in dignity and in freedom. For the human liberty and sacred rights, for opportunities to change and to grow, to affirm and to choose. Studies and surveys have consistently shown that one in 10 Unitarian Universalists, only one in 10 Unitarian Universalists, grew up in this faith. In other words, 90% of us came from no religious tradition or from other spiritual traditions such as Christianity, Judaism, Catholicism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and earth-centered pagan traditions, just to name a few. Unitarian Universalism is a tapestry of faith, 
a big tent that seats many people. So outsiders frequently ask, what holds you together? And the answer is our mission statement, which each congregation develops on its own and which our church says together, together each Sunday. It's written high on the wall to your left, so please join me as we say it once again in love and in faith and in commitment. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our reading this morning is from Nishmat Kol Chai, the lyrical Hebrew prayer that begins the main section of the Shabbat morning service in every synagogue. Nishmat Kol Chai means the soul or the breath of every living thing. I'll say the first line in Hebrew, then say in English two of the beautiful sentences that follow it as we enter a moment of prayer, meditation, or clear-hearted mindfulness according to each of our own beliefs and practices and aware that any sounds by children are part of the music of the universe. After the prayer, you're invited to walk to the window and light a candle, and you'll find suggestions for how to do that in your order of service. Nishmat kolchai, pavarechet simcha Hashem elchenu, beruachu baser tefeir tomim zikracha malkenu tamid. The breath of every living being shall bless your holy name, and the spirit of all flesh shall remember you. Were our mouths as full of song as the sea, and our tongues as filled with joyous songs as the number of waves in the ocean, and our lips as full of praise as the spaciousness of the heavens, and our eyes as brilliant as the sun and the moon, and our hands as outspread as the eagles of the sky, and our feet as swift as deer, we would not be able to thank you enough. Truly, Hashem, God of many names, we are not able to thank you enough as we open our hearts in this moment of silent gratitude. We thank you for every breath and for every step. Amen. So, thank you for being here, and thank you for letting me be here. I'm really glad to be with you again today. I don't know what your Thanksgiving Day and weekend have been like, but mine have been joyous and soulful, as they have been all my life. As you heard me tell the younger church, I was born on Thanksgiving Day, so this is usually a birthday weekend for me, and I'm one of those lucky people who really likes getting older, at least so far. Uh, and even though I can't or don't do many of the things I used to do, such as run marathons or swim competitively or dance my fool head off to 70s and 80s rock music, I find fresh pleasure every year in who I've met, what I've learned, and how good my heart and soul feel most of the time. But even if it weren't the occasion for celebrating another trip around the sun or another trip back into the living room to get what I forgot the first time I was in there, 
I would still love this holiday above all others because it seems to me to be what life and spirituality have become centered on for me. Thanksgiving, gratitude, and a sense of radical amazement that I'm alive and on, on, and on this earth with all of you. I'm sure the past weekend has brought some joys and annoyances to many of you as you've listened to some elderly patriarch mumble through an obligatory grace before the Thanksgiving meal or realized how much one of your siblings still works your very last nerve, even though both of you are adults and should presumably be able to get through one meal or a few days together without homicidal ideations. Or, or maybe you've thought guiltily about world hunger or cringed a little as you remember participating in a Thanksgiving school play that depicted the colonizing pilgrims as the beneficent white folks sharing their bounty with the indigenous people whose lands and lives were about to be taken in some misbegotten idea of manifest destiny. Or perhaps you laughed derisively and judgmentally as TV cameras panned across the long and often unruly lines forming at big box stores on Thanksgiving night or before dawn on Black Friday, or you've wearily concluded that parades, overeating, and football are what the day is all about, or you felt your body stiffen or sag at the thought of all the cultural frenzy and overspending that lie in wait until December 25th finally arrives, or maybe you've been astonished, as I have, to see that every year near the end of, November, near the end of October, Someone starts a 30-day gratitude challenge on Facebook, and hundreds of people rush to participate. 30 days? Less than 10% of the entire year? And a challenge? As if it were a short live game of Jeopardy or beach volleyball? Besides its mostly having become a speed bump on the way to Christmas, what has happened to this holiday? And what has happened to us that we have compressed the conscious, individual, and collective <clears throat> excuse me, uh, practice of gratitude into a once-a-year crescendo, followed by little else on the following 364 days? Did Thanksgiving Day once represent something important nationally and personally? And if it did, is there something about it we yearn to reclaim and revitalize either temporally or spiritually? And if the answer to that is yes, how do we go about it? By way of some brief historical information, Thanksgiving Day in the United States is rooted in 16th century England during the Protestant Reformation and the reign of Henry VIII. Up until that time, the calendar of the Catholic Church called for 95 church holidays per year in addition to the usual 52 Sundays, all of which required people to attend church, miss work, and sometimes pay for expensive celebrations. A series of reforms in 1536 reduced the number of church holidays to a mere 27, but some Puritans wanted to eliminate all church holidays and repl replace them with specially called days of fasting or days of thanksgiving, in response to what the Puritans viewed as divine providence. For example, days of fasting were called when God allegedly brought a flood in 1613, and days of thanksgiving were called in 1588 when God gave the English Navy a victory over the Spanish Armada. 
you get the picture. The Puritans obviously brought the idea of a day of Thanksgiving with them when they came to the New World, and our modern Thanksgiving Day in the United States is usually traced to a sparsely documented harvest celebration and feast held in 1621 in Plymouth Colony. When he was president, George Washington proclaimed November 26, 1789, as the first nationwide Thanksgiving celebration in America, but it was observed in different, on different dates and in different states for many years until 1863, when in an effort to have some sense of unity or, or foster some sense of unity between northern and southern states, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed the date to be the final Thursday in November. That date prevailed until December 1941, when Franklin D. Roosevelt signed a joint resolution of Congress changing the day from the last to the fourth Thursday in November. Thanksgiving Day is celebrated in October in Canada, and it's also celebrated at other times in the West Indian island of Grenada, in Liberia, in the city of Leiden in the Netherlands, in the Australian external territory of Norfolk Island, and in the nation of St. Lucia. And there are similar holidays in Germany to celebrate the harvest and in Japan to celebrate labor and production. By way of an even more brief sociological and psychological information, longitudinal studies have consistently found that gratitude is a significant contributor to physical and mental health, personal happiness, and peacefulness about one's own death. But history, sociology, and psychology are easy topics compared to the nature of gratitude. So together this morning, let's consider how we might deepen our practice of Unitarian Universalism by deepening our practices of gratitude and how we can grow into a life of constant, mindful, open-hearted, full-bodied gratitude that will make our remaining years and relationships full of hope contentment, and peace. One of the most appealing things about Unitarian Universalism is that it's a big tent that seats people all along the theological spectrum, from non-theists like many members of this congregation to theists like me. And in spite of our theological diversity, I'm confident that each one of us has our own theory of grace and that every Unitarian Universalist along our theological spectrum at least occasionally utters the phrase, I'm grateful for, or I'm grateful to. Those very words, for and to, imply that gratitude has an object. But I don't think it matters at all whether we think of that object as God, or spirit of life, or mystery, or presence, or evolution, or lady luck, or another human being. For each of those statements is a recognition that we have received something from outside of ourselves that creates a feeling within us that we want to acknowledge out loud and share with others. And even though our seven principles don't mention the word gratitude, I think it's the invisible thread that runs through all of them. Gratitude for the worth and dignity of every person, for justice, equity, and compassion for freedom, responsibility, conscience, the democratic process, peace, liberty, and interdependence. 
we would not be aspiring to these things if we had not experienced them, appreciated them, and gratefully wanted to share them. No question about it. Gratitude feels good, and it often motivates us. But I think many of us approach it by backing into it by default or by comparison. And we know this is happening when we hear ourselves saying things, such as I heard the other day, thank God my daughter was already on a plane coming back from Paris when the city was attacked on November 13th. Or think of all the starving children in Africa. I suppose comparing quality and quantity of blessings is better than no sense of gratitude. But this kind of backed-into gratitude is usually only a temporary response to circumstances we find ourselves in. So what, what I want us to think further about in the remaining minutes is how we can make gratitude the primary condition of our souls by establishing in our lives some conscious, daily, affirmative practices that will keep us mindful of the patterns of grace that are operative in us every day and will let us give thanks in everything, even if we can't give thanks for everything. The 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard wrote that life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. As I'm standing at the pulpit right now, I know that a hundred million zillion things went into my being here with you at this very moment. I was in my mid-twenties when I finally got away from the extended ambit of things that had harmed me as a child. And as I seated myself in the plane that was taking me to New York for my first job as an attorney, I realized that I never thought I would live past the age of 10 but by some unseen grace that was not of my own making, I was still alive, and I was being given a chance of healing into a better and happier life. To the consternation of the flight attendant and the person sitting next to me, I cried silent tears all the way to New York and tried to explain them as just missing friends in Texas. But those were tears of thankfulness. And the experience of crying them ushered me into a whole new realization that I want and need daily reminders and practices of gratitude. For a few years, I looked around in various religions and wisdom traditions for perfect gratitude prayers, and I eventually happened upon a piece of writing by Meister Eckhart, a medieval Dominican mystic who was noted for his observation that if the only prayer you ever pray is thank you, it is enough. But Meister Eckhart also believed that the spiritual life has much more to do with subtraction than it does with addition, and this eventually led me to four uncomplicated gratitude practices, two which bracket the day in the morning and the evening, and two others which infuse the day. These have become embedded in me, and the more I practice them, the more I feel each day as a gift. When I wake up in the morning and first open my eyes, I close them again and say, Today is Sunday, November 29th, 2015. Thank you, God, for letting me see this day. Then throughout the day, whenever I pull up to a stoplight or a stop sign, I take a conscious breath and say, Thank you for this moment of stillness. And when I eat a meal or have a snack, I say, Thank you for this food and for the earth and the people who brought it to me. 
And at the end of each day, when I get in bed, I take out a small notebook and engage, engage in the Jesuit practice called examen, E-X-A-M-E-N, which is listing the three things for which I was most grateful during the day, followed by the three things for which I was least grateful, and then asking, where was God in all of this? The purpose of this practice is to let us acknowledge our angers and disappointments as well as our joys and satisfactions, to let us recognize that we live in paradoxes and contradictions that make our lives full and textured and three-dimensional, and to ask ourselves, where is the divine and the holy in all of this mess? I like how one priest has described the practice of examen. He calls it rummaging for God among the remains of the day. Theology has variously been defined as a way of being and knowing, and that's also a pretty good definition of gratitude. But over and beyond ways of being and knowing, theology and gratitude are both ways of acting. And I think that if we consistently practice and live into gratitude, it becomes a benevolent taskmaster that eventually turns us inside out and requires many things of us. I'm an inveterate list maker, and in thinking about the seeming contradiction of gratitude amplifying our lives, yet requiring a lot of us, I came up with five things that I think gratitude insists upon. First, it requires us to be honest and forgiving with ourselves about how much we assume and take for granted. Second, it forces us to slow down enough to raise our own level of noticing to that place where we begin to see the holy in ordinary things, where we realize that doing the laundry is not Dante's ninth circle of hell, but is something made possible by the gifts of water and soap and electricity. In other words, gratitude requires us to develop an increasingly complex perspective that leaves us standing in what Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel calls radical amazement, a combination of wonder, awe, and proximity to mystery. Third, gratitude reminds us to stay away from the practice and the language of boredom, and it demands that we stop the media and the Internet and Facebook from being the primary storytellers of our lives. Fourth, it urges us to let go of what we don't need so we can bless it and send it on its way, to pay it forward with love and hope. And finally, gratitude asks us to acknowledge and stay mindful of the grace that has brought us safe thus far. In what is thought to be the oldest book in the Christian scriptures, the Apostle Paul wrote to the new congregation at Thessalonica, In everything give thanks. It was only about 10 years ago that I realized that this verse says in everything, not for everything, but in everything, give thanks. That's it, I thought. This is the joy and the strength of living into gratitude, of becoming and being gratitude, that there is always something to be thankful for, even in the hardest circumstances. Not by comparison, not by backing into it, but with the full-hearted gratitude that says, by grace, I am here. 
no matter what happens, I am always thankful for being given this life. The anonymous they say that we teach and preach what we most need to learn, and gratitude continues to be one of those topics for me. In thinking about this sermon, I realize that gratitude is a feeling, a practice, and a kindly coach who says, look at all of this, give thanks for it, shape your thoughts and your actions around grace received and grace to be given. Never forget that none of it is of your own making. Today, I'm filled with gratitude for the grace that brought me to this denomination and this congregation, for what you were teaching me and giving me, and for all that is our life together. May we deepen the feeling and the practice of our gratitude. May we hear and act upon what it asks of us, and may we live into it every moment for the rest of our days. Amen. At this time, we extinguish our chalice, and we do so with saying the words in, printed in your order of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. May the grace of the Spirit continue to bless this generous congregation. May we let ourselves be turned inside out by gratitude. May gratitude be the grammar and the language that connect us to the divine, to each other, and to every part of creation. And may gratitude be the condition of our souls. Amen. <laughs>